Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another episode of C is for Creepy. Thank you so much to everybody who listened to last week's episode. It was so great seeing all of the listens. It's been great. Yes, it has. So we're just going to get right on into it. Yes. What is your B? So this week for B, I'm covering burial. Okay. Yes. Now, burial is defined as the action or practice of interring a dead body. Specifically, looking at one form of body disposal is just like a little tricky to navigate, though. So I am going to share what I found regarding why killers will bury their victims and why those specific locations. Okay. Okay. So you're getting more into, like, some of the psychology this season. A little bit more of the psychology. Well, li- it'll depend on the topic. So okay. if there's, psych to cover, I'm going to try and cover it. Cool. Um, Once, it, like, these studies, there's going to be some percentages. Take them with a grain of salt. We are not professionals. Yeah. Yep. So I'm seeing what I've found based on studies. You can look at those studies if you want. I don't know. Okay. Do you? This I'm just sharing what I found. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So according to CrimeScenInvestigator.net, around 55% of killers attempt to conceal a body in some way. As well, 87% of killers transport a body to a secondary location after the murder. Makes sense. You know, you don't want to... If you're killing people in your basement, you probably want to remove the body from your premises. You would think... That would help. It would. But remember, not everybody has a car. This not a big chance for a body. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. So another interesting tidbit is that killers who pre-planned the body disposal were more likely to keep a victim's body on their own property. Oh. This could be because transporting a body to a dump site is much more risky to the perpetrator than storing the body on their own property. So there's always the potential that someone could see you transporting the body. So that is an added risk factor. Mm-hmm. It should be noted, however, that the vast majority of the time, regardless of pre-planning or not, the dumping, the dumping spot used by the killer is usually known to them. Yeah. Interestingly as well, according to a Dutch study done in 2015, it was found that almost 60% of the victims were buried within 10 kilometers of where they were last seen. The reason for this number is because relatives or ex-partners who have killed the victim tend to bury them in the garden of their victim's own property. (laughs) Which is really fucked up when you think about it yeah like you're buried on your own property yeah (laughs) okay okay so the study hold on sorry 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 um do these people not have nosy neighbors i'm assuming some of them do but like if i was digging a big ass hole in my backyard i would bet you any money that at least one neighbor would come up and be like 
Why are you dating a whole year younger? Well, I definitely know that they'd be like, did you call before you did? Here. Right. <laughs> yeah, somebody would fucking call on me for, you know. <laughs> they, no. didn't, they didn't find out where the water lines are. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I just, I, I find it very hard to believe burying a body on your own property technically is, like, the safest way to do it. Well, that's just outside of your house. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's mind-boggling. It is. I, I agree. I also, though, do not have the motivation to bury, a, like, to dig a hole to bury someone. No. Like, if you're gonna do something, you gotta do it right. So, like, my little shallow grave that I'd be willing to dig isn't gonna get me anywhere. So what's the point of even starting? Like, <laughs> well, and then, like, if you're caught, they're just gonna, like, you've given it easy access. Right? The ground is loose, everything's loose, like, Mm-mm. There's no. better ways. There's much better. There's more efficient ways. Yep, I agree. Okay. Definitely not my first choice. Let's put. I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. The study also noted that the graves were, on average, rarely more than seventy centimeters deep, which is like I just said. It's a lot of work to dig a hole mm-hmm. if you're gonna bury someone, like. What's 70 centimeters? That, that's nothing. Yeah. So this concludes my fun pat facts, and we're just going to get right to the case, because okay. this is a little bit of a long one, and it's a doozy. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going to be covering John Wayne Gacy, also known as Pogo the Clown. Oh, no. So my mom first told me about this when I was probably, like, grade six. And I actually had no idea he was a clown until, like, I started actually getting into true crime. Oh, shit. Because that was not the focus of it when she was telling me about him. It was the fact of where his victims were buried that freaked her out. And so, in turn, that's what was was in my mind with this case. Yeah. So, I think of burials, and I think of him. I don't think of killer clowns. (laughs) But, like, he never actually killed someone dressed up as a clown. He just happened to have an occupation of being a clown, I believe. So, some reports say that he terrorized a couple victims while in the clown costume. But those are just those reports. Like, it's hard to know for sure. Yeah. But, yes, you're right. So, but either way, so... Yeah, I know lots of people are like, oh, he's a clown. Why are you saving him for clown crimes? Because I don't think of him. (laughs) No, I think of the crazy people chasing you down with knives for clown crimes. Right. So Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois on March 17th, 1942. He was the second born in the family and he was the only son. His father, John Stanley Gacy, had served in World War I and was working as a mechanic. His mother stayed at home and took care of the house and the children. Gacy's father was an alcoholic, abusive, and would spend hours locked in his basement. Gacy's father... The children and mother were not allowed downstairs, with signs on the door saying to keep the fuck out of the basement. Oh. And all of the locking boxes were, like, everything was kept under lock and key. 
What was he doing in that basement? Uh, I can't imagine anything good, but... Was he chopping up bodies? I don't think so, but it's hard to say. As a young boy, Gacy tried to win the approval and love from his father to no avail. His father often insulted him for minor incidences, calling him dumb and stupid. Oh. His mother attempted to shield the boy from his father's wrath, but that would lead to more insults, saying that he was a sissy and, quote, would probably qu- grow up to be queer, end quote. Oh, okay. In the documentary The Gacy Tapes, it was shared that Gacy was once caught by his mother trying on her underwear, which she punished him for doing. I believe she beat him. But I would definitely give a strong talking to about personal belongings. Like, I don't think I'd be mad about them trying on my underwear. In like, if they're a boy just trying on women's underwear, I wouldn't be upset. But like, get your butthole (laughs) off my underwear. Yes. It's a one butthole kind of (laughs) These are Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Yeah, there would definitely be some... Personal boundary t- discussions. Yeah. <laughs> we don't share underwear in this house. If you want underwear, we'll just go get you some new ones. Yes. Um. <laughs> when Gacy was a teen, he was overweight and unathletic. Heart issues were also found, which led doctors to telling the young man to well, avoid sports. Okay. At 15 years old in 1957, Gacy's appendix burst, and he was in and out of the hospital for the following few years. Gacy's father was convinced that the boy was faking these conditions for attention and offered no sympathy. Awesome. After graduating from Northwestern Business School in 1963, Gacy started to work for Nunn Bush Shoe Company. He was later transferred to the Springfield, Illinois location where he became the manager of his department. That is also where he would meet his wife, Marlon Myers. The couple was engaged in March of 1964 and married by September of that same year. His father-in-law had purchased three KFC restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. It was then offered that Gacy would move with his wife to Waterloo, to manage the restaurant for $15,000, or in 2022 dollars, that would be $140,000 a year. Wow. So that's a huge promotion. That's a great way to set up a family. Yep. Gacy claimed that, like his own father, his father-in-law was constantly disappointed in him. Mm-hmm. The couple moved to the mayor's former home and got busy. Gacy built a hangout spot in his basement for his employees. So, like, it kind of looked like a little bar kind of set up in his basement. Like, he wanted to be the fun boss. Okay. Kind of the vibe that I got. Okay. Like, he was just really wanted, like, Michael Scott almost, where he really wanted to be the life of the party and for people to be around. Okay. So, he... Unlike Michael Scott, he gave the young teenagers alcohol and would really only interact with the males. Mm. In 1966, Marlon gave birth to a son and then a daughter in 1967. 
During this time, Gacy was also involved with the Waterloo chapter of JC, known by its full name as the United States Junior Chamber. So it's basically like a leadership training and civic organization for men who would want to get involved in politics. Okay. This is where Gacy truly gained the majority of his confidence, being well-respected for his fundraising abilities and eventually being named Outstanding Vice President in 1967. Like, it's a boys' club. Like, at the end of the day, like, there's wife swapping, there's drugs, there's prostitution involved. Like, it's it's a good old... It's a Christian motorcycle club. It's a boys' club. Love it. Yeah. This is when there was a drastic change to Gacy's social standing, as it was in March of 1968 that the son of a fellow J.C. member told his father that Gacy had formed him to perform oral sex on the teen. So he... He, like, propositioned him? Forcefully. The incident occurred in August of 1968 when Gacy had enticed a 15-year-old to come to his house with the promise of watching a pornographic film. Donald Voorhees was given alcohol and they watched what was called a steak film. When Gacy persuaded the teenager to engage in mutual oral sex. Okay. You know, I truly feel... That if you invited me over to watch porn, I don't think that I would join you. You know what? I feel like that's okay. I'm actually really all good with that. I feel like that's solo time. Right. Yeah. So, (laughs) I just... I, I... Not to defend him in any way, shape, or form, but I could definitely see how that could be misinterpreted. I I could if he was like okay well maybe he does like men depending on his age. It was a hetero film, like not that it really matters, but like it's also a fifteen year old boy. What fifteen year old boy being told like hey want to come like I feel like as a teenager things are more like easily to be explored with other people and like. Yeah question like i mean it's a time of exploration sure you're not gonna side-eye someone for inviting you to come watch porn with them no you'll be like hey well this guy does it maybe it's something that all guys do just i don't know oh okay i i would turn you down okay well i mean that's fine please don't let it ruin your day (laughs) i'll do my best (laughs) okay okay and then he forcefully told him to have yes engage you yes cool not cool kind of an asshat he gets so much worse this was not the only incident of gacy abusing teenage boys and others have since come forward upon being told by his son what had happened Voorhees informed the police who then charged gacy with sodomy sodomy against two teenagers so sodomy is just basically the like any sex that isn't P and V. It, it's like oral or anal, just not that. That's a law specifically. P and V, penis and vagina. Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> okay. Yes. Any cavity that is not actually meant. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Gacy had to grow up. Gacy had to undergo a mandatory psychiatric evaluation, after which it was concluded that he had antisocial personality disorder. It was found that Gacy refused to take responsibility for his actions and deflected, and so turning himself into the victim of circumstance. I, what can be misinterpreted there? He would not take accountability like at the end of the day there's he would try to spin it so that he was the victim in all of these circumstances whether it was going back to his childhood whether it was going back to any sort of relations relationships that he had like he was the victim and the things that happened around him were not his fault he was a victim of circumstance love that okay he was, however, seen fit to stand trial. Good. So Gacy pled guilty to one count of sodomy on November 7th, 1968. How old was he? Ooh, that's a great question. It's 1968. He was born in 42. 42. 68. So he was 26? Sure. I didn't do the math. <laughs> okay, 26 and 15. Uh-huh. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Okay, so he pled guilty. While in jail, his wife, Marlon, filed for divorce. Fucking you, right. You go, Marlon. You got a good head on your shoulders. Yep. Okay, with his separation, Gacy considered his form- former family dead to him and never saw his children again. That's always great. While in prison, he was a model inmate, was well-liked, and quickly rose through the ranks. Gacy was granted parole on June 18, 1970, serving only 18 months of a 10-year prison sentence. Now out of jail, Gacy... Can I... Sorry, can I ask? Is he white? Like, yes, he is. He's one hundred percent white. White man, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, now out of jail, Gacy moved back home, moved back to his hometown of Chicago, where, with his mother's help, he bought a house that featured a crawl space. Gacy's mother and he lived together in the house until Gacy met his second wife, Carol Hoff, who he married July first, nineteen seventy-two. And did Carol Hoff know about his, you know, um, his digressions? I believe she did right oh. before they got married. Okay. But okay. don't quote me on that. I just, I'm pretty sure that he told her. I just don't know for sure. Okay. Okay. Carol, who had been friends with Gacy as a teenager, had been going through a divorce when she reconnected with him multiple sources say that before the couple got married gacy told carol about his past and also that he was bisexual okay okay unbeknownst to carol was that the house she lived in 
concealed a much darker side of her husband. On July, sorry, on January 1972, Gacy picked up a 16-year-old boy from a Greyhound bus station with the promise of a safe bed to sleep in, and that Gacy would drive him to the station in the morning. Once at Gacy's house, it has been determined that he must have plied the boy with alcohol and molested him. The following morning, Gacy had woken with the image of the teenager standing with a knife by his head. Sorry, that did not come out. Woken with the image of the teenager standing with a knife in his hand. Gacy tackled the boy, got the knife, and stabbed him. It was claimed by Gacy that in this moment, hearing the gasping sounds for air from this boy, that Gacy experienced a, quote, mind-numbing orgasm, end quote, and that killing was the ultimate thrill. Gacy dumped the boy in the crawlspace, which he had access to from his closet, and buried him down there days later. So, Gacy was doing what he could to improve his societal image. He married Carol, who had two daughters of his own, so he could start playing the family man, which he claimed he truly enjoyed. The family was frequently going out or hosting big backyard barbecues. It was also in 1971 that Gacy started his own contracting company, calling it PDM Contracting. Pedophile dead man? I don't remember what that stands for. I didn't write it in here. (laughs) What started as a part-time work quickly grew to the point where Gacy would work multiple jobs up to 16 hours a day. Part of PDM's success was the fact that Gacy primarily hired teenage boys to do the work for him, which made much cheaper labor compared to that of experienced professionals. Yep. It would be no surprise to anyone that Gacy's employees were often the victims of this predator. Many of them were propositioned for sexual acts in return for favors, such as lending them vehicles or for promotions. Many attempted rapes have been reported, and here is one. Uh, By, uh, Sorry, I'll tell you about when soon. Not yet. By 1975, Gacy's business had boomed, and he was also advised, sorry, he also advised his wife that he would no longer be having sex with her. Why? So it was at this time that Gacy converted the garage into a work area and forbade his wife and stepdaughters from entering it. Carol also started to notice that there was men's wallets in the house. Her husband was staying out all night, and there was an abundance of pornography that featured male-on-male action. I don't believe Carol knew that she was married to a killer, but with all of this evidence leading her to believe that her husband was having affairs on top of this, like, he also had a tumultuous and controlling attitude, it just was too much for her. So she left him. Yes. Good for her. On October of 1975, Carol asked for a divorce after an argument over balancing the checkbook. A month later, the divorce was finalized with the reasons being infidelity with women. And that's what what Gacy insisted. It was also in late 1975 that Gacy became aware of the Jolly Joker Clown Club and joined 
creating the iconic Pogo the Clown character. Gacy did all of his own makeup and costumed, costuming, delving deep into the characters he created. The iconic Pogo was a happy clown, while his other character was Patches, who was more serious. He performed at many events and was seldom paid for his clownery. Really? Yeah, it was mostly volunteer work. He claimed that this was a way to regress into childhood. Hmm. Gacy hired one 18-year-old man to work for PDM and offered to let him stay with him. The men spent an evening drinking while Gacy was dressed as Pogo the Clown. During the course of the evening, Gacy managed to get the man to put handcuffs around his wrists. Gacy then spun the man around by the linked chains and the cuffs shouting that he was going to rape him. The young man fortunately kicked Gacy in the face and managed to free himself. Good. We are now going to jump ahead to December 11th, 1978. Okay. Robert Piest was a 15-year-old part-time employee at Neeson Pharmacy in Des Plaines. Mm-hmm. Gacy had gone to the pharmacy to provide a quote to the store owner for a potential remodel. Seeing the teenage boy, Gacy bragged loudly about the wages he paid his employees, which were almost double what Robert was making at the pharmacy. Around 9 p.m., Gacy's mother arrived at the store to pick him up so he could, so that they could celebrate her birthday, but the 15-year-old asked if she would wait for him so he could talk to the contractor about a job. Hmm. It has been estimated that Robert Peast was dead shortly after, 9, after 10 p.m. So, like, what? Jesus. Yeah. No time. Like, hey, come to my house and we'll talk and just murder them. Yeah. Okay. So the Peace family immediately reported Robert is missing. Unlike the cases of many other teenage boys that had gone missing in the area, Lieutenant Joseph Kozinczak did not chalk this up to a runaway situation and investigated further. After getting the name of the contractor who had been at Neeson's, the lieutenant decided to do a criminal background check on Gacy. Imagine the red flag that popped up when they saw that when they saw the sodomy charge against a fifteen-year-old boy there. Mm-hmm. This warranted a conversation with Gacy. Initially, when the police arrived at his house, Gacy refused to go to the police station to interview, saying that he was too busy, but he would come by later. Jesus. At three twenty a.m. Gacy arrived at the precinct covered in mud, but the investigator was not there, so Gacy said that he would come back. Oh, why the fuck would you show up at 3 o'clock in the morning? Covered in mud. Police soon produced a search warrant for Gacy's house, and on December 13th, investigators went in. So, I'm going to read a list of everything that the police found during this first search of his house. Okay. Several police badges. A 6mm pistol, a syringe and hypodermic needles, handcuffs, books on the subject of homosexuality and pedastry, which is specifically about adult male relationships with adolescent boys. Pedophilia. Okay. Okay. Titles include Pretty Boys Must Die, 
They also found many pornographic films. An 18-inch dildo. A 2x4 with holes drilled at the end. Valium and atropine. Wait, 2x4 with holes drilled at the end? Yeah, so think of, like... So, like, a 2x4 with, like, ways that holes like so you could connect something like a rope could go through either end of them to tie somebody down don't love that no i don't love any of this um most suspiciously was the number of driver's licenses that did not belong to gacy underwear that was clearly too small for him a 1975 class ring with the initials jas a section of rope and last but not least, the Nissan Pharmacy photo receipt, proving that he was there. Mm-hmm. So this was not enough to arrest Gacy. However, the evidence found would be considered circumstantial at best. I'm sorry, none of the driver's licenses he had on him were for anybody that was missing. They couldn't it's always a possibility that like oh well i just found all those driver's licenses right it's just because they find a license doesn't mean that you killed somebody and that's the burden of proof yeah and like it's shitty but they gotta be able to get this guy and make sure he's gone for good so Mm -hmm. well sure they probably could have arrested him on suspicions there's they would no have guarantee. Like 48 hours to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. So. So police decided that the best way to put pressure on Gacy was by having officers follow him day and night. Hmm. With an idea of who they were dealing with, instead of being covert in the surveillance, police actually went to Gacy's door to let him know exactly what was going on. Oh. Boy, did Gacy make them work. He was constantly on the move, driving from different job sites, and he drove with little regard for anyone else on the road or the law. With the constant police presence, however, Gacy started to let his guard down around them slightly, treating the officers almost like they were friends. So when Gacy would go out to eat, he would invite the officers to eat with him, and he would talk to them about himself, saying once, quote, you know, clowns could get away with murder, end quote. Hmm. Can you? <laughs> the second warrant came after the interviews of a victim of Gacy's was found. The man in question had been held captive, raped, and tortured before being dumped with multiple injuries in May of 1978. Hmm. Despite the horrific crimes committed to this man, Gacy was arrested for battery and was awaiting trial. As a side note, this is a com- this is common in Gacy's past, where he would get in trouble with the law for the crimes he committed against young men, but rarely face repercussions, mainly due to his connections. And white privilege. Mm-hmm. But, I'm sorry, so this young gentleman got out? Like he, Yeah, he survived. Okay, sorry, it wasn't super clear. Yeah. Um, no, no, he was found. So he was found alive after being brutally tortured and raped. And yeah. Okay. So he was able to get hospital care and good such. Um, back to 
the second warrant, another employee of Neeson's confirmed that Gacy had spoke to Robert Peast. Another interview was done with an employee of Gacy's who told police that he had spread 10 bags of lime in Gacy's crawlspace. Oh. Another employee who I had previously mentioned who had lived with Gacy and almost been raped by him also told police that he had been asked by Gacy to dig trenches in his crawlspace. The dimensions were two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep. Gacy invited the surveillance team back inside his house one evening. One of the officers in the bathroom heard the furnace kick in, and with the heat moving through the air ducts, caught the unmistakable scent of decomposition. The evening of December 20th, Gacy went to his lawyer's office as he was attempting to file a civil suit against the police for the surveillance. <laughs> as soon as he got to the office, he asked for a drink and soon started to confess. Gacy was quoted saying he had been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people. Oh. Gacy confessed to killing around 30 young men and teenagers. To his lawyer. To his lawyer. Gacy confessed to killing around 30 young men and teenagers, though discounted them by calling his victims male prostitutes and hustlers. Oh. He also told his lawyers that the bodies were buried in his crawlspace since they belonged to him. So, I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but would this lawyer be sworn to secrecy? Uh, he, technically, there is the privilege i believe that because like they're supposed to act in their best defense right they did I... sorry to cut you off they did um try to keep him at the law office while they were trying to figure out what to do after this confession but like they didn't know what the fuck to do with this like what would you do if somebody one of your friends came up to you and was like, I killed 30 people. Oh, <laughs> I would be like, okay, okay. And then when you got home, I would fucking ride you the fuck out. <laughs> Unless, like, I don't know. I think there would have to be some crazy situation. Like, an ex tried to murder you in your bathroom, and you killed him. I'd help you bury the body. But if you told me we're raping and killing 14-year-old girls, I probably wouldn't be your friend anymore. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. Probably a good thing. Okay. So he told, yeah. So the morning after this confession, Gacy was arrested after passing a bag of marijuana to a gas station attendant. <laughs> okay. It was also December 21st that the second warrant to dig up the crawl space was finalized. The crawl space had been flooded by Gacy, who had unplugged his sump pump. Once the water had been drained, an official began to dig and quickly announced that they could charge Gacy with murder, adding it looked like this place was full of kids. Oh my god. Now that it was official that Gacy would be charged with murder, he had finally decided to confess to police about what he had done. So, buckle up, this is the worst part. John Wynne Gacy murdered at least 33 boys who were between the ages of 14 and 21 years old. Gacy usually lured a single boy to his home, but on occasion would lure two at once. 
Once inside his home, Gacy would ply the boys with drugs or alcohol. Then he would perform the handcuff trick on himself to gain their trust. He'd then offer to show them how to do it. Unfortunately, the trick was that you had to have the key. <laughs> this is when the torture would begin. What Gacy would do to these boys was sadistic and degrading. Gacy would use restraints attached to the two-by-fours to keep his victim's leg immobilized. When Gacy was done torturing, he had what he called the last trick, which was a rope trick. This was a rope tourniquet placed around their throats and slowly tightened. The majority of his victims were killed by strangulation. Out of the 33 men he had murdered, 26 were buried in his crawl space. So, this is all awful. The fact that pisses me off the most is he only dug five of his own fucking graves. He hired his employees to dig the rest for him. If you're gonna do a crime, you complete it. Oh. <laughs> but, I, you know what, I don't know. I have no words at this point, because I also feel like if I asked any one of my friends to dig 28 holes in my yard, they would all tell me to kick fucking rocks. Mm-hmm. Or they'd dig one and be like, yanyon. Mm. So it, it also shows you his power over people. Well, and, yeah, like, they're his employees, so he- girls. Mm-hmm. So other victims were found buried on the property, including under the garage, under the dining room, and beneath the patio. The other four known victims had been dumped in the De Plains River. Hmm. So he ran out of room. Jesus. Gacy went to trial February 6, 1980, with, charged with 33 murders. His defense counsel insisted that Gacy undergo psychiatric psychiatric test to determine if he was mentally fit to stand trial. While undergoing evaluation, Gacy told doctors that he had four different personalities with Bad Jack Henley, who he claimed was a policeman, was the one that committed all of the murders. This is what his defense based their plea on, which was not guilty by reason of insanity. Of course, as we all know from I last season, it is pretty damn tricky to successfully achieve an insanity plea, especially when there is obvious premeditation to all of your crimes and you went to the extent to cover them all up. Mm -hmm. The defense also attempted to argue that all of the 33 boys died by accidental erotic asphyxiation, which was argued as being highly improbable. One, maybe two. 33. Like 15 years apart? Sure. Maybe. 33 within, what, two years? I think the fuck not. Hmm. The prosecution also brought former victims to the stand to testify against Gacy. How'd that go for him? Not well. Good. After five weeks of testimony and evidence being brought before the court, the jury took less than two hours to find John Wayne G Gacy guilty on all counts. Gacy was then sentenced to death. Hmm. After 14 years on death row, in which time Gacy attempted to appeal the ruling, his execution date was May 9, 1994. Gacy's fi final meal was a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, 
french fries, strawberries and cream, and a Diet Coke. Which, I mean, you're gonna die, dude. Why get a Diet Coke? (laughs) I'm sorry. Maybe he enjoys the taste of Diet Coke. You should die for that alone. (laughs) (laughs) At the time of execution, which was by lethal injection, the chemicals solidified, complicating the procedure. Once rectified, the entire procedure took 18 minutes. Gacy's official time of death was 12.58 a.m. on May 10th, 1994. For research, Gacy's brain was also removed. The same doctor who interviewed Gacy was attempting to find what could cause a person to become a serial killer, but examining this murderer's brain, it was found that it was completely normal. Just like a normal human brain. So, well, thank you for that. I I think this is part of, like, an ethics thing, but I don't understand why put such a malicious serial killer on death row and not keep them for, like, studying practices. I think it has a lot to do with ethics and, like, morale for the families and victims, but... Why? Like, what possesses someone to be such a vile person? I really wish that, like, we could watch them and pay attention and, like, learn, I like, guess. Like a human zoo? Yeah. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I don't know. To an extent, I can definitely see where you're coming from. And... There have been some killers that, you know, they have gone all out, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to be covering one later this season that has given vivid descriptions and why they do what they do. But it's also, I think, important to remember that these are things that they've said. So, like, Gacy, who was interviewed for a number of years, Mm -hmm. he always painted himself as the victim. Mm. right he was not responsible for what he did okay i mean even on trial he tried to blame an alternate personality and you cannot convince me (laughs) so i guess you're right yeah so like what's the point of having somebody that he's not gonna talk to us anyways not not tell he's gonna tell his own version of events Mm -hmm. right so that's true he did what he did. He did. There was the tapes. You could listen. But that is the case of John Wayne Gacy and his horrible burials. What an asshat. Mm-hmm. I don't love that. Well, thank you for your story. Thank you. I'm excited to hear your beef. Folklore. Centered on the 19th century Bell family of Northwest Robertson County, Tennessee. Farmer John Bell Sr. resided with his family along the Red River in an area currently near the town of Adams. <laughs> According to legend, from 1817 to 1821, his family in the local area came under attack by mostly invisible entities that, was, that were able to speak, affect the physical environment, and shapeshift. 
Some accounts record the spirit also to have been clairvoyant and capable of crossing long distances with superhuman speed. Oh no. And of being in more than one place at a time. Oh. I don't know. That's too many things. That's just too many haunting things. (laughs) I agree. So the information I got is from ExploreSouthernHistory.com, Wikipedia, ShareTNGov.com, and AtlasObscura.com. Okay. So, in 1804, the family consisting of John and Lucy Bell and their children, Jesse John Jr., Drury, Benjamin, Esther, Zadok, Elizabeth, Richard Williams, and Joel Egbert. (laughs) Poor Egbert. Joel Egbert. (laughs) Poor Drury. (laughs) Yeah. They built a house and started a farm on a thousand acres. Located on the Red River in Robertson County, Tennessee. Wow. Big family. Well, yeah, you need a thousand acres for all of them. Yeah. So the origin of the legendary Bell Witch is, of course, a mystery. In early accounts, the spirit itself provides its origin story, stating, I am a spirit. I once was very happy, but I have been disturbed and made unhappy. I am the spirit of a person who was buried in the woods nearby, and the grave was disturbed. My bones have been scattered, and one of my teeth was lost under this house. I am here looking for that tooth. Of course, this cannot be verified. However, a number of Indian burial mounds have been found in the region. Okay. In another event, the witch claimed to be a spirit from everywhere. Heaven, hell, the earth... I am in the air, the houses, any place at any time, and I have been created for millions of years. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) The first appearance of unusual disturbances sounded the Bell family is usually reported as an incident on the farm in which John Bell fired a shot at a dog-like creature, which vanished. Oh, no. Drury and Betsy also began to see strange creatures near the property. These sights are accompanied by strange sounds around the house. Betsy, Drury, and John began to hear unaccounted-for knocking on the doors and windows. The sounds of wings flapping against the ceilings and the sound of rats gnawing on bedposts. Ew. Most disturbingly, the sound of choking and strangling could be heard along with chains dragging and heavy objects hitting the floor. Okay, I was going to blame the rats choking on the bedposts, but no, I don't think they're doing their the chains and the dropping stuff. Yeah. Sounds emanating from the bedroom as if beds were suddenly and roughly pulled apart, to which was added the sound of fighting dogs chained together. Making the noise deafening. Oh no. In all cases, the source of the noise was never found. No rats were ever found in the home despite thorough searching and no damage to the furniture was ever discovered. Oh no. During these demonstrations, the family refused to speak of the events to their neighbors. I don't blame them. No. In fear of sounding crazy. 
The spirit increased its activity, sometimes physically abusing the members of the family. Oh. Yeah. Joel, Richard Williams, and especially Betsy were subjected to being struck, pinched, and having their hair pulled relentlessly by the witch. No. Yeah. Lucy Bell and John Jr. were left relatively unharmed by the witch. Lucy was proclaimed by the spirit to be the most perfect woman living. (laughs) And the witch showed a great deal of compassion towards her, even caring for her and signing to her while she was ill. What the fuck? Could you imagine being one of the siblings being pinched with your hair pulled and, like, fucking Lucy's the most perfect woman alive? Oh, I know. I'd be so fucking bitter. Oh my god. Yeah. (laughs) John Jr. had long, intense conversations with the witch, but he never failed to show his animosity for it, declaring it to be the spirit of the damned. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's really impressive that he's having full-on conversations with it, and it can carry a full-on conversation. Right? Ugh. Yeah. So, some of the witches' shenanigans included the sermons. On one famous occasion, the witch recited perfectly the sermon of Reverend James Gunn of Bethel Methodist Church, followed by the sermon of Sugfort. Despite the fact that they had originally been giving at the same time more than 12 miles apart. Oh, that is eerie. So, like radio. That's, that's icky. Yeah. So, the next one, the witch and William Porter. Family friend William Porter claimed the witch climbed into bed with him, allowing him the opportunity to seize the spirit in the bed clothes. And attempted to throw it into the fire, saying only the immense weight and terrible smell of it prevented him from succeeding. Oh. So, the witch in the bell sleeps. Because remember, this was a time. Yep. The witch had a dislike for the family slaves, tormented them relentlessly, beating them, and refusing to allow them into the house. A bell slave named Dean stated he encountered the witch several times and that it appeared frequently in the form of a large black dog or wolf, sometimes with two heads, sometimes with no head. (laughs) Dean also claimed to be turned into a mule and attacked several times by the witch. What the fuck? He carried with him at all times his axe and a witch ball made by his wife as protection from the witch's influence. You know, I gotta say, I don't know if that witch ball's doing very much for you if you're being turned into a literal mule. I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, the next one is the witch and the shakers. Visitors and neighbors were not immune from the witch's performances either. In one instance, the witch set three dogs, Caesar, Tygy, and Bulger, on traveling shakers who never traveled by the farm again. So I think shakers are like salespeople. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, like, you know, could be worse. Could be worse. So the next story is the silver bullet. Neighbor and husband of Esther Bell, Bennett Porter, fired a shot 
at a naughty log that had been conjured up by the witch. She struck the bark and cut into it, but the conjuring vanished. Only the bent tree and bullet hole remained. Ooh. Mm -hmm. In another instance, Dr. Mize, a noted conjurer from Simpson, Kentucky, came to exercise the witch and was mocked and frightened away by her. (laughs) Yeah, I would not be talking about that if I were him. Yeah. John Bell Sr. and Betsy Bell seem to be two of the most frequently abused by the witch. For reasons still unclear, the witch adamantly opposed the union of childhood sweethearts, Betsy Bell and Joshua Gardner, frequently resorting to ruthless taunts and physical abuse. Joshua Gardner and Betsy remained attached, but she put off marriage in fear of a spirit's reprisal. The witch attacks Betsy the witch's attacks on Betsy were not all related to her relationship with Gardner. The constant threat of the witch began to affect her such that she became prone to fainting smell spells and smothering sensations. Oh, God, poor Betsy. I know. Often appearing exhausted and lifeless, her experiences were not confined to the Bell property either. Betsy later described one incident. When the spirit became so tantalizing, filling my mind with horror and causing me to become so nervous, my parents often sent me to a neighbor to rest for a night. My first night away from home was spent with Fenny Thorne. When we retired, there came a loud knocking on our outside door, which seemed to fly open and a great gust of wind was felt. Fenny sprang up at once and lit a candle. To our surprise, the door was not open. Then a voice spoke softly. Betsy, you should not have come over here. You know I can follow you anywhere. Oh, no. (laughs) Now, get a good night's sleep. A soft hand patted my cheek, and the voice again assured us that we would not be disturbed anymore that night. Oh! No. <laughs> the rest of the family often attempted to give Betsy relief, and family friend Frank Miles promised to protect Betsy from any further abuse by the spirit. Betsy said Frank was the most powerful man of powerful man any of us have ever saw, and just as fearless as any living man. One time he said to me, Come sit by me, little sister. Nothing will bother you while I am here. The witch responded, You go home. (laughs) You can do no good here. (laughs) The witch then began abusing Betsy, slapping her, pulling her hair before turning on Miles, knocking him over, and enraging him. Oh my god. Like, the spirit's kind of just an ass. Kind of. That's all it is. It's just jackassery except to Lucy. Yeah. (laughs) Betsy continued to endure the spirit's abuse, and after calling off the marriage to Gardner, Betsy was eventually courted and married to her former school teacher, Richard Powell. Despite the apparent abatement of the witch's torment in 1820, she left the area with her husband and settled in Mississippi. Good. Get away from here. Yeah. So, 
Even though it played a relatively minor role in the original Bell Witch legend of the early 19th century, the cave on John Bell's property has since become a focal point for visitors hoping to experience a bit of the haunting themselves. This cave is called the Bell Witch Cave. Strangely, during her vicious time on the Bell Farm, one story says the witch also made time to save a child inside the Bell Witch Cave and quickly, oh, and gave a quick lesson on safety. According to this version of the legend, a group of children playing on the farm discovered a 500-foot-long cave. During their exploration of the dark cavern, one of the children became stuck in a hole. Panicking, the child called out for help, only to hear his cry answered by a voice shouting, I'll get him out. That voice and the invisible hands that pulled the boy out of the hole belonged to the Bell Witch. Holy moly. I know. After pulling the child out of the hole, the invisible witch, in an uncharacteristic act of kindness, gave the children a quick lesson on safety (laughs) and safely exploring caves and disappeared again. Most accounts hold that the Bell Witch Cave served as the witch's home when she was not tormenting the bells. Added to the National Historical Registry in 2008, the cave is the only original feature from the legend that can still be seen today, largely unchanged from the way the Bell family would have seen it in 1817. Wow. So, though numerous eerie events have been reported by visitors to the cave, including the renowned difficulty in taking photographs around the site in this pre-digital age, Mm -hmm. nothing on the scale of the original haunted haunting, nothing on the scale of the original haunting centered around the bell house, long since torn down, has been reported since the early 1800s. So, the death of John Bell. One of the central goals of the Bell Witch seemed to be the death of John Bell Sr. Mm-hmm. Old Jack Bell, as this parent called him, was blasted with curses, heinous threats, and serious physical torments. As the abuse continued to impact his psyche, Bell took to his bed and was cared for by John Jr. On December 19, 1820, John Bell failed to leave his bed and John Jr. went to the cupboard to retrieve the medicine for his care. Instead of the three medicine vials, he only found one. It was one-third full of a dark, smoky liquid of an unknown origin. Oh no. The voice of the witch gloated. It's useless for you to try. It's useless for you to try to relieve old Jack. I have got him this time. He will never get up from that bed again, she claimed. She claimed of the vial that she gave old Jack a big big dose of it last night while he was fast asleep, which fixed to him. The contents of the vial were thrown into the fire and erupted in a blue blaze. John Bell died on December 20th, 1820. The Bell Witch crashed the funeral, disrupting <laughs> the service and singing body drinking songs. Yes. Yep. Following the death of John Bell, the witch's activities dropped off sharply. The spirit was still active through the winter and spring of 1821, but soon bid the family farewell. 
telling them it would be gone for seven years. True to its word, the family remained on the property. Lucy, Richard Williams, and Joel claimed the witch did return in February of 1828, reappearing in much the same way it appeared the first time, shaking beds and unexplained noises. It soon vanished again, claiming it would return to haunt the Bell descendants. Once again, in 1935, but no other specific hauntings of the Bell family or their property on the level explained in the early 19th century have been reported. Despite the unexplained activity in and around the Bell Farm in Adams, Tennessee, continues. Various encounters near the property along the old Nashville-Clarksville Road and the famous Bell Witch Cave still draws tourists and ghost hunters to Adams. That is wild. Yeah. But yeah, I was just like, I'm going to take a seven-year vacation. Like, yeah. I've done my job. Everybody's been annoyed. Right? <laughs> so, like, I killed who I came for. Have a nice life. Yeah. Although, I... Poor Betsy. I know. Oh. Yeah, she definitely got the brunt of it. That's, that's just awful. I'd be pretty salty. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to uh, leave us a review, uh, give us a rating. Send us an email at cforcreepy at gmail.com or check out our website. Yes. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to See Is For Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.